Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be in God's presence. And thank you for giving priority to the hour together. I have a promise for me, for you. Draw near to God. You know the rest of it, don't you? And He'll draw near to you. What better way to begin the day by calling time out to our normal routines and gather and tune in and sense the loving, caring, gentle coaching of the Holy Spirit. There's something he'd like to say to all of us before we go. Let's pause and ask for his guidance. Father, we appreciate this chapel opportunity this morning. I pray your blessing on everyone in attendance. You know what we need. I pray, Lord, that you would cause your spirit to step in among us and visit with us in intimate ways and show to us fresh truth from the scripture and enable us to understand and obey as would be pleasing before you. <clears throat> Help me one more time with the anointing of your Holy Spirit and let the net result of our time together be a significant step forward in our relationship with you and with each other and the great cause that brings us together here. In Jesus' name, amen. Nineteen seventy-three through seventy-six. Dave and Jerry were students at NBC. Upon graduation, he took a two-year youth pastorate with his dad at Payette, Idaho. Then they moved to Gooding, served that church for eight years. Then went down to Coolidge, Arizona, for three and a half. Moved on up to Phoenix, Monta Vista Church, for another three and a half. Then moved to Moscow, Idaho, and served there eight and a half years. Upon their arrival, Moscow was running 380. When they left, they were running 900. Left Moscow and went to Salem, Oregon, First Church. Just finishing up six years. When they arrived, the attendance was 800. And now they're averaging 11.75. I called McGarra, Dave McGarra, this morning on my cell phone at the breakfast table. He was already at the office. I said, anything you want me to tell him? I wrote down a quote. Want to hear it? Thank you, both of you. <laughs> the investment made in me by the caring leaders at NBC has been the most significant thing in my ministry. So, I just like to pass on some good news once in a while. Let you all know you're doing a top job here. And what you're all about is important and significant and life-changing. Because of NBC and what you're all about here, there were folks influenced and pay it through Dave and Jerry and then Gooding and then Coolidge and Phoenix Monta Vista and then Moscow Idaho and now Salem and that influence is being multiplied time after time story after story and I'll keep passing them on as I gather them because I just want you all to know what's happening here is significant and influential and will have eternal consequences. A day's coming when we're all going to check out of this place and land in heaven. 
And when you look in your rearview mirror, back to your day spent here, you'll have a smile on your face and joy in your heart, knowing that you made an impact that lasted for Christ and for souls, for time and for eternity. Amen. You'll scan the crowd in heaven and say, well, blow me down. Look there. I remember when he was a student at NBC. And look at the crowd that he brought with him. Look at the crowd she brought with her. I just want you to know, I'm mighty proud what I know about this school, your history, your current posture, and your bright future. Reminds me of a familiar passage of scripture in Mark chapter 6. If it would be okay with you, and it better be, we'll review a familiar miracle story. Mark chapter 6. And in a moment we'll look at verse 34 and following. I heard a story about a young adult lady who bought a brand new red sports car. As the account was unfolded to me, the first Saturday she was off work, she took it on a very exhilarating test drive in the hill country outside of town. She put the pedal to the metal and enjoyed the car's agility at every tight turn. She was having the time of her life with her new expenditure. But to her shock, as she came around a bend in the road, a farmer in the rural region had negligently allowed a pig to get out of the pen, and the pig was standing right in the middle of her lane. And she swore dangerously to the left, barely missing the pig, almost lost control, and nearly rolled the car in the left side ditch. She hung on for all she's worth. She overcorrected, and she went clear across the road and in the right side ditch. Still hanging on, she got back out on her lane. And then to her shock, around the next bend in the road, came a farmer in a pickup truck. She aggressively yelled, Pig! And he yelled back, Cow! <laughs> and the farmer went around the next bend and ran over to Pig. What she was saying was not what he was hearing. Did you know your perspective is highly determinative? It makes a big difference. Perspective, or other synonyms, viewpoint, angle of observation, or vernacularly stated, where you're coming from. Makes a big difference. You ever seen anybody set dominoes up on end in close proximity? And watch them bump the first one? And see the predictable chain reaction that happens? That's the way it is with perspective. Because perspective affects our thoughts. And thoughts affect our attitudes. Attitudes affect our behavior. Behavior affects bottom line and results. Pig cow! How you see the situation. Your contextual analysis of reality. Wasn't that profound? <laughs> affects the bottom line end result. Because perspective affects thoughts, thoughts affect attitudes. Attitudes affect behavior, behavior determines end result. Have an undesirable end result, look behind that, and you can often find a wrong behavior that affected that end result. Find a wrong behavior, look behind that, and you can find a wrong attitude that influenced that behavior. 
Find a wrong attitude, look behind that, and you can find a wrong thought process that coagulated, solidified, gelled, and formed that attitude. I'm convinced all an attitude is, is the gelling of habitual thought life. Find a wrong thought process and look behind that and you can find an initial mistaken perspective. Biblical truth of that reality, Mark 6 verse 34. You'll recognize it as the familiar reading, the feeling of the multitude. This is the only miracle story that shows up in all four gospels, indicates its importance to the writers. Mark gives us a different view. He provides a stark contrast between Jesus' perspective at verse 34 and the disciples' perspective at verse 35. Let's take a look. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So, he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was five thousand. You're so polite. I know you're sitting there silently musing. Oh man. What timely, relevant, helpful insight are we going to get this morning from such a familiar Bible story? I know that because I'd be thinking the same thing if I was sitting where you are. It's a good question. Let's take a look. Jesus' perspective is detailed at verse 34. It says, when he landed, he saw a large crowd. If you could believe the tour guide, I've been to the spot where this is said to have historically occurred. The Sea of Galilee hugs the shore, makes a little cove. The hillside descends down to the water at a gentle slope on the right side and on the center and on the left. It forms a real nice natural outdoor amphitheater. Mark, no doubt an eyewitness, said when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. It's not too hard in my imagination to watch Jesus move one leg after the other over that side of that fishing boat, probably sunk knee deep in the shallow water. If I listen closely in my imagination, I can hear him slosh and crunch his way on the rocky shore. It's not a sandy beach like Southern California or South Florida. It's a rocky, pebbly, gravelly kind of a beach. As he approached the shoreline, it'd be natural that he'd lift his head and scan the crowd that had already begun to cluster themselves on the side of the hill. Mark writes, when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. Next says, he had compassion. 
If you read the story from the Gospel of John, there's a different verb, felt compassion, indicating a nearly simultaneous internal emotional reaction to his visual perception. He saw a large crowd, he felt compassion and observed them as sheep without a shepherd. We treat people consistently with how we view them. I'm in my 28th year of crisscrossing the nation in itinerant evangelistic preaching ministry. You know what itinerant means? Can't hold a job anywhere. <laughs> I bumped into some churches where pastors gave me the impression that they viewed them as mules without a plow. Jesus viewed them as sheep without a shepherd. We treat people consistently with how we view them. If you have a perception, oh, he's a snake, you'll treat him like a snake and you'll stay away. If you have a perception, oh, she's a skunk, you'll treat her like a skunk and you keep a safe distance. We treat people consistently with how we view them. Pig, cow! Perspective affects thoughts, thoughts affect attitudes, attitudes affect behavior, behavior determines end results. Jesus saw a large crowd, felt compassion, observed them as sheep without a shepherd. So what? The next statement is, so he began teaching them many things. Do a little research in that passage, you find out that the so he began teaching them many things is directly connected to the previous information. It can be accurately translated, since he saw a large crowd, since he felt compassion, and since he observed them as sheep without a shepherd, therefore the appropriate action Jesus felt necessary was to immediately jump in the middle of need-oriented, helpful, caring, teaching ministry. So he began teaching them many things. Well, that's his perspective. The disciples' perspective is detailed at verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. Don't know how far, but there was some degree of distance between where Jesus was teaching and where the disciples had gathered because the writer says, by this time it was late in the day, and the disciples came to him. And the context bears the intent and content before they came to him, they had formulated a leak-proof package of logical persuasion from their repulsive committee meeting on the side of the hill. You know those kind of committee meetings? I don't know who called the committee. My first guess it would be Peter. Don't want to be unfair to him, but he's kind of like me. Highly verbal, proactive. Had a habit of putting and driving, stepping on the gas even before he was sure which way he was going. I do recall on the Mount of Transfiguration, he proposed an impulsive building program of three tabernacles. I don't know who called the meeting, maybe Peter. Johnny, come here. Psst, Tom, get John. Bart. They had a little committee meeting on the side of the hill. It had to happen because when they came to him, they had already formulated their motion. I don't know what the conversation was. Getting kind of late. Yeah. Long way from town. No doubt about it. One might have said, I'm getting hungry. Another kid could have said, if I don't get home, my wife's going to be mad. We don't know all the conversation. But somebody said, well, what the world are we going to do? And the bright boy said, better go talk to the boss. <laughs> so someone was chosen to be the spokesman for their impulsive committee meeting on the side of the hill. They came to him. 
by this time it was late in the day. The sun had already begun to paint a hot fluorescent orange fringe on the hilltops in the west. This is a remote place, they said. Point number one, we the committee have discerned. Point number two, and it's already getting very late. Jesus did not argue with them. He could have debated. He said, oh, we're only a half hour from town and uh, got another 45 minutes of daylight. He didn't argue. He just let them talk. Therefore, since this is a remote place and since it's getting mighty late, we therefore make a motion that you send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Well, wasn't that holy and noble and impressively sanctified of those boys to be so concerned about all those folks in the empty tummy? Jesus smells something fishy. <laughs> he knows us. What does he know about us? He knows we like to take the easy way out. He knows we like to be on our own page. He knows that we like to be concerned about our self-interests. And he knows that we don't mind if it appears to be considerate of others and their needs at the same time. Truth was, these guys were tired and hungry. They'd been with the Lord in ministry and travel all day long. It was near dark. They wanted to get home, get some supper. And Jesus vetoed their motion. Big cow coming from two different directions. Jesus sees a large crowd, feels compassion, observes them as sheep without a shepherd. So what? So he begins teaching them many things. The disciples coming from a different direction say, hey, it's late, it's remote. Send them away so they can go and us too get something to eat. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. I'm a curious Bible student and I want to know the passage in its pure, large, broad context and found out that the vocabulary that Jesus used in his response was not a polite diplomatic pastoral suggestion. You might get the impression at reading that Jesus stood there with tilted head and folded hands and with a kindly smile, with pastoral demeanor. Perhaps we could survey the crowd and discover what we might share with one another. Uh-uh. It's not there. The vocabulary the content carries the impression of one who puts his hand on his waist and his finger in their face, raises his voice and stomps his foot. It'd be more accurate to see Jesus said, all right, if you guys are so all fired concerned about all these folks in the empty stomach, feed them yourself. He vetoed their motion, kind of like an airbag blown up in your face in a car accident. About that time, the treasure passed out. <laughs> And the chairman of the finance committee quickly calculated, oh man, eight months of a man's wages wouldn't buy enough for a sandwich for this crowd. Evidently, there's always been somebody hanging around the kingdom of God saying, we can't afford it, it's not in the budget, and we never did it that way before. <laughs> I have a suspicion that these guys are ancestors of some Nazarenes I've known. <laughs> you know some Nazarenes are so narrow-minded they can see through a keyhole with both eyes? <laughs> Jesus saw a large crowd and felt compassion. Observe them as sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. 
Disciples reading on a different page say, it's late, it's remote, send them away so they can go and us too and get something to eat. And Jesus said, if you really care about them, feed them yourself. And the response was, it's going to cost too much. You know, that's really brain dead. It's kind of funny if you really think about it. Who was that standing on the hill next to them? Jesus Christ. Well, who's he? God's son, second person of the blessed trinity, co-eternal with the Father, born of the Virgin Mary. Remember John's gospel chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And here these guys are telling the one who made the hill they're standing on that they couldn't buy a sandwich for that crowd. You ever been there? Pig, cow. Perspective makes a difference. Well, he vetoed their motion, scattered them on the hillside at dusk without a flashlight on a scavenger hunt. And in my mind, I see these guys pivot in opposite directions. And when Jesus wasn't looking, they kick the dirt and say, oh, man. <laughs> and you know the rest of the story. Mark doesn't give us the following detail. But they bumped into a schoolboy with a sack lunch. Hey, kid, what you got in the sack? This is my lunch. Mm. Jesus wants your lunch. <laughs> say what? Jesus wants your lunch. What would you do if you were that kid? How many of you here this morning would be tempted to say, well, tell him I'll split it with him. <laughs> Did you know there's no miracle when you compromise a full surrender of all you are and have to him and his sovereign will for your life? The kid was human. It's okay to be human. I looked the whole crowd over. We're all human here. No extraterrestrials. A couple I was wondering about. <laughs> and in his humanness he had conflicted feelings mixed emotions he was selfish but wanting to be generous hesitant but trying to be obedient and I see him tilt his head and squint his eye with a wrinkled cheek in a slowly raised arm, one finger after the other, he relaxed the stranglehold of his meager assets to thereby merge with the Lord Jesus Christ and his intent and purposes to meet the need of a multitude. Let's connect some dots here. God in his love and kindness and wisdom has allowed us the privilege to merge with the Lord Jesus and become a small participant in a grand idea that multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and meets the need of thousands. That's a wonderful snapshot photo of sanctified living. An uncompromised, thorough, up-to-date surrender of all we are and have to Him and His sovereign will for our lives. And in my own relationship with the Lord, once that commitment was established, it needs to be maintained or there's unavoidable attrition and atrophy. Got to stay 
connected and up to date. So it becomes my responsibility to politely ask us all, are you currently postured in your relationship with Jesus where you can truthfully testify that you surrendered your lunch and are found in total compliance with him and his will and divine strategy for your life? Any level of resistance or competition, any argument, any debate, any procrastination? Sometimes we excuse disobedience with other rationalized terms as pondering or processing when we really need to take action. Well, you know the rest of the story. Fed the crowd, picked up 12 basketfuls. Folks went home with a full tummy and leftovers. A couple of things to think about from this passage this morning. The first issue is perspective, pig, cow. You and I cannot always assume that our perspective is accurately matched to the Lord's perspective. This morning it would be a healthy moment for each of us to internalize and ask the Lord, what's your perspective about my personal life? About our marriage? About my relationship with the ch children or parents? Lord, what's your perspective about my functioning on the job? Or at the school or in my church? Every once in a while, you and I need to allow the Holy Spirit to pick him up a remote control and change the channel on our perspectives. Second issue we need to think about is not only perspective, but we need to think about surrender. Are you currently postured in your relationship with God where you can truthfully say, like that little schoolboy with his sack lunch, you've made a thorough abandon, surrender, compliance to him and his sovereign will and thereby become a participant in a miracle. Last evening I mentioned the story of Harold and Judy Brimmer, now pastoring in Doris, California. I mentioned a minute ago about Dave and Jerry McGarrah. And their stories go on and on and on. And as we participate here, like a schoolboy with a sack lunch, making a full surrender of all we are and have, we merge in the divine purposes of the Lord and multiply what we have in the lives of thousands. So, before we go, I'd like to give you an opportunity to spend some time in prayer. You may want to come and kneel and talk to the Lord about perspective, the pig-cow issue, because perspective affects thoughts and thoughts affect attitudes and attitudes affect behavior and behavior determines end results and maybe you would benefit from kneeling and saying Lord check out my perspectives and thoughts and attitudes and behaviors the end results have not been that desirable and relax he's not here to hassle you or hammer you he's here to help you others may need to come and talk to the Lord about the issue of surrender and entrust all you are and have to him and merge with him and his purposes to meet the need of a multitude. Let's share a song together. Please stand with me and bow your heads.